This week on the show, we are covering various topics. For example, security, performance and interoperability of FreeBSD 14, introducing the new release from the FreeBSD Foundation, HardenBSD's November 2023 status report, how to create a FreeBSD jail hosting a remote desktop, a tutorial, a sneak peek into the future, what could happen in the BSD space in performance and SIMD enhancements, programming FreeBSD reading process information, why Unix kernels have grown caches for directory entries, name caches, and always be learning and always be teaching in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 541, Learning and Teaching recorded on the 21st of December 2023, our last episode in the old year. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Yeah, welcome. You may be all in the new year, happy and uh, shining. Hopefully this episode finds you well, but we are not done yet with the old year, so we have one more episode to record, and this is the one. Uh, we have headlines collected for you. Uh, you may think that during the end of the year, the news would go a little bit quieter, but, well, there is a couple of things we can report to you. And the first one is our headlines, starting with security, performance, interoperability, introducing FreeBSD 14. And that is on the FreeBSD Foundation's website that goes like the following. Uh, the FreeBSD community is proud to herald the release of FreeBSD 14. That has happened a couple uh, weeks ago, but still uh, fresh. If you haven't upgraded yet, you will find uh, that it's nice to uh, look at the new release, what it uh, gives you. FreeBSD 14 represents the 82nd release in the history of one of the world's first open source projects and contains over two and a half years of development work since the launch of the previous release. FreeBSD is the engine behind some of the world's uh, most well-known and widely used systems and brands including Sony PlayStation, NetApp, Juniper, NetScaler, Netflix, and NetGate, with support until at least November 30th of 2028, that's a little far out there for the FreeBSD 14.x series of release. FreeBSD 14 continues FreeBSD's legacy of creating and, uh, and having an exceptionally stable, secure, and performance-oriented operating system. FreeBSD 14 brings further security and performance enhancements along with extended support and interoperability. In this blog, they'll take a look at these key themes to outline what's new in FreeBSD 14 and, more importantly, why it matters. So they have three major uh, headlines here, security, performance, and support and interoperability, as mentioned. And in the security space, they say, FreeBSD has a long legacy of being a secure and stable open source operating system. FreeBSD's developers continue to work on and prioritize security with the intention of creating the most secure version of FreeBSD possible. FreeBSD 14 provides increased security in multiple areas, including the capsicum sandboxing, authentication, and removal of unnecessary services and more. It's important to note that some security updates announced for the release of FreeBSD 14 have been incorporated into existing 13.x releases, the prior ones, in order to ensure the enterprise level stability and readiness before their formal introduction in 14. 
So that's good to know. The Capsicum is a lightweight operating system capability and sandboxing framework that was initially developed by University of Cambridge with grants from Google, DARPA, and the FreeBSD Foundation. Capsicum stands out as a framework that allows developers to create programs that operate within a safe sandbox environment that is separate and isolated from the rest of their environment. The prototype for Capsicum was developed during the FreeBSD 8.x releases, and Capsicum has continued to see improvements in FreeBSD ever since. For example, FreeBSD 14 brings Soxstat to Capsicum sandboxing. Uh, Soxstat is a versatile, or versatile utility that displays open sockets within FreeBSD. You may have used that in the past. A Soxstat utility can be used for a wide range of use cases, including, but certainly not limited to, troubleshooting. There's also uh, further measurements to prevent return-oriented programming attacks in FreeBSD 14. A return-oriented programming attack, or ROP, is a technique that always allows attackers to execute code in their target system by gaining control of a system's call stack. Mature open source projects like FreeBSD have numerous developers throughout the world making further iteration inherent, and FreeBSD 14 represents a continuation of existing security measures in this area by enabling position-independent executables and address-based layout randomization by default for 64-bit architectures. And lastly, in the security space, FreeBSD provides updates in cryptography and email, making FreeBSD 14 ideal for highly regulated industries and governments. FreeBSD 14 includes support for the FIDO U2F hardware authenticators. Uh, those uh, are an open authentication standard, FIDO U2F, overseen by the FIDO Alliance. And that was created by Google, Ubico, and the NXP semiconductors with the vision of making a secure public key cryptography system. Aside from support for FIDO U2F, FreeBSD introduces a more secure, lightweight, and performance-driven default mail transport agent in Dragonfly Mail Agent. Dragonfly Mail Agent provides the maximum secure possible in the smallest footprint for users who would like to set their own balance between security, performance, and load management. In the performance area, they list that FreeBSD is known for many other things besides security, and high performance is one of them. In fact, Netflix has done numerous talks, and they are linked from the article... Uh, about the kind of cutting-edge networking throughput they're seeing, but it's not just Netflix that benefits from FreeBSD's high-performance capabilities. Companies like SimPro and DeepStack, a separate link uh, to those separate articles, uh, or even YouTube videos, oh, nice, uh, have given talks about how they have benefited from FreeBSD's performance capabilities. Yeah, these from the uh, recent FreeBSD Vendor Summit that has concluded in November. FreeBSD 14 provides additional performance enhancements that can lead to less downtime and helps FreeBSD take the lead in the world of serverless computing. FreeBSD now reboots even faster than before. To be precise, FreeBSD can now boot in only 25 milliseconds. We've covered this in earlier episodes, and this is just a good way to reiterate the good work they've done there. This massive amount of performance improvements makes FreeBSD 14 an ideal choice for micro VMs. FreeBSD also lays the groundwork for further compatibility with a Firecracker virtual machine monitor. Although much of the ground laid in FreeBSD 14 to optimize for serverless computing is in the background and not in user experience, a faster reboot time is noticeable and further work is known going in the area of serverless computing. Stay tuned. And in the support and interoperability area, they list FreeBSD focuses heavily on support and interoperability with other systems, including Linux and major cloud providers. Let's face it, a hallmark of open source technology is the freedom and stability and ability also to choose software depending on what's right for user-specific situation, and FreeBSD is adding to that hallmark with FreeBSD 14.
new efforts to enhance interoperability is, uh, or with Linux, represent an interesting shift in direction for FreeBSD. FreeBSD 14 makes it easier for users to port applications and programs from Linux to FreeBSD or vice versa. In this area, a number of utilities have been added to FreeBSD 14, including the NPROC utility, compatible with Linux's program of the same name, and the native TimerFD facility to enable porting of Linux programs that use TimerFD, and a Netlink utility for further compatibility with Linux. Lastly, the theme of support and interoperability, FreeBSD 14 includes support for servers uh, with greater CPU space on AMD64 and ARM64, up to 1024 cores, 1024 cores, wow, making FreeBSD an ideal choice for high-performance computing scenarios where systems are running large data-heavy applications. FreeBSD 14 provides further support for users of major cloud providers such as Azure, Amazon's Web Service, and Google Cloud. FreeBSD brings optimized networking support for Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure, ensuring that all three top cloud providers now have enhanced networking support in FreeBSD. FreeBSD 14 also brings a superior file system in the form of ZFS for use on Amazon's web services and Microsoft's Azure. FreeBSD users with ARM64 and AMD64 architectures are also known supported on all Azure VM types. And they conclude with, altogether, FreeBSD 14 includes countless new features supported by the FreeBSD Foundation and represents strong steps forward in the FreeBSD project. The release of FreeBSD 14 includes both iterative improvements, like support for OpenSSL 3.0.12, and innovations like an astoundingly fast reboot time, along with further optimization for a serverless future. If you're not currently familiar with FreeBSD and you're interested in serverless computing, high-performance computing, or even a stable and secure operating system, now might be a good time to start looking into FreeBSD. They link to the FreeBSD website and also how to, or the website where to get the FreeBSD 14 download ISOs. It's a great overview. Um, you know, I, I reflect back on a couple of episodes ago when we did the 14.0 release and, um, you know, this is this is sort of represented that in, in a far better, you know, context. Uh, I like how this has been written. Um, you know, some of the things I take away from this is like, you know, I'm a big fan for the, uh, the greater CPU space component up to uh, 1024 cores with the uh, rapid race of core count along you know in amd and the arm space uh they're, they're going for the sky so fast that um yeah 1024s is going to be it's going to be hit like you know relatively um you know soon in bare metal you know you're looking at what 192 cores per cpu when you're seeing you know that many cpus sitting on the motherboard so you know 1024 is not out of the question you know and uh yeah. Maybe we should be start Goal looking. Are shifting. Yeah, maybe we should start looking at 2048. Uh, yeah, anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's not just increasing like a, a constant in a source file somewhere, and suddenly you support many more CPUs. It's also you know the CPUs take care of many things in the system, and they like balance the network stack and stuff like that. So this needs also a bit of testing. Mm. It's not just hey, just increase the number and be done with it. Um, but I guess, as you mentioned, as systems evolve and hardware gets better and better, uh, the operating systems need to take uh, this into account. Yeah, it's like, you know, people think it's like a volume knob and, you know, watching the development of Beehive with, you know, the CPU limits that we had with inside Beehive at one point, uh, you know, it's not just as easy as just going into a config file and adjusting it up. It's not a volume knob by any means. There's a lot of... Um, time switching and things that you know 
interrupts here. There is so much stuff to take into consideration. It's way over my head, way over my pay scale. You know, it's it's quite quite fascinating. You know, watching the boffins. I call I call the developers boffins because <laughs> they 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 wave their magic and um you know make make things just do stuff that you know you look back thirty years ago and never thought an Intel system back then would ever be where it is today. So yeah, you know, kudos to the developers to make that happen. But you know, another thing out of that um, brief is the uh, Dragonfly Mail agent. Um, oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we've we've rolled that out uh, quite significantly on our FreeBSD fleet because it is so small and it just works. You know, it's just you know sends it all to the 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 shared mailbox and we can go through go through that on a daily basis. So it's um, lightweight and secure, so there's uh, less stuff running on your system. Then we'll send mail. It's great. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of uh, people probably saying, yes, finally, we have no more send mail daemons to deactivate, which we're not going to use anyway. So that is good to have. Moving on to the Harden BSD November 2023 status report by Sean Webb. The focus in November was navigating and closing the purchase of a new home. I worked a little bit on the change to JE Malloc uh, that will optionally return null for zero size allocation requests. I realized that I lacked a lot of knowledge on how JE malloc works and I need to fill those gaps fully before landing this feature. I worked on a bit of cross-flow DSO CFI, including working on the ports tree. I started toying around with a little little with applying CFI uh, via LLVM K CFI to select kernel modules. Some work needs to happen in the kernel it, Elf linker to support newer relocation types. LD.LLD emits when linking with F sanitize KCFI. In source, the VFS ZFS B clone enables CCTL tunable is set to zero by default. We hope to re enable it after a long soak time in FreeBSD. Generation of open SSH RSA host keys is disabled by default. In ports, uh, LOICF fixed the Lang GCC 11 and Lang GCC 12 ports. Uh, Sean Webb fixed the database Postgres uh, glob server ports. Uh, Sean Webb fixed the DNS void zone tools. And Sean Webb added a new port, the security uh, evil GenX2. I wonder if that's some sort of NGINX thing. Anyway, uh, important infrastructure note. I'm hoping to move the hardened BSD development build infrastructure over to the new house as soon as this weekend. Electrical work still needs to happen, but I might have a workaround available until a proper solution is in place. If the move does not happen this weekend, which is the uh, 2nd to the 3rd of December 2023, then it will definitely happen the following weekend. Other projects. While writing this very status report, I've kicked off another build of hardened BSD FW, this includes the latest ZFS changes from upstream and more open SSL fixes. I'm hoping to have it tested and uploaded this weekend. Once I have the JE malloc feature sorted, I plan to resume work on the lib hijack. Uh, I've been letting my brain think about what needs to happen next over the past few months. Implementing an RTLD over the ptrace boundary is a bit more difficult than one might think. I've also started writing a little hardened BSD testing framework. This will help us identify and resolve regressions like the PAX no exec regression I've still yet to fully resolve. 
If you'd like to help with hardened BSD development, but you're unsure where to start, there's this nifty issues board that shows all the bugs, features, and other work we would like help with. And the link is uh, there in the status report, which is also linked in the show notes. I guess Sean will be happy to celebrate Christmas in the new home. Uh, and yeah, support hardened BSD if you can, if you're using it. And uh, take a look at the issue board. Maybe you can find something you can help work with. It's time for the news roundup now, and we have a how-to for you after you've eaten all the Christmas candy and unwrapped all the packages and, you know, ask yourself, what do I do now? Maybe create a little bit of a, you know, tutorial or follow one that you may find interesting, like this one. How to create a FreeBSD jail hosting a remote desktop. Uh, this is from Stefano Marinelli, who's uh, doing a lot of good things. For example, uh, running the BST Cafe. And uh, also this website here with a bunch of good notes here. So I had a brief email exchange with him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, very nice. And so this one is, uh, like I mentioned, how to create a FreeBSD jail hosting XRDP and XFCE for remote desktop access. And so this tutorial, inter the introduction reads, guides you through the process of setting up a FreeBSD jail that hosts XRDP and XFCE. The setup enables secure remote desktop access. So the prerequisites for that, you need a FreeBSD system, uh, basic knowledge of FreeBSD jails using Bastille BSD in this case, but uh, I guess you can also exchange this with any other uh, jail manager, and you need SSH access to the FreeBSD server. Okay, step one, create a new jail with Bastille. Uh, of course, again, you can use any other jail manager. This is pretty much agnostic for that. Uh, they create a new jail using BustTBSD. The following command initializes a jail named XXVE with FreeBSD 14 release on the IP 10.0.0.200. You can use any other IP that you have available. Uh, it's BustT, create XFCE, the release name or the version, and then the IP address followed by Bastille 0. After creating the, the jail, modifying its configuration in a default environment, it would be user local Bastille jails xfce jail.conf to enable certain features. Uh, what are they changing? Default configuration of XRDP needs an IPv6 address. So you need to say sysvh, uh, sysvshm equals new, uh, IPv6 address colon colon 2 and allow mount procfs to 1. Okay, so you can find all these, of course, in the show notes, uh, where we link to this article. Step two is to restart the jail. Restart the jail to apply these changes you just made. Then step three, install XRDP and XFCE. Of course, you can all also use a different uh, desktop, I guess. That's not too much of a dependency here. Uh, in this case, uh, config uh, or the things you type in the console is Bastille console XFCE to get into the jail and then run package install uh, the packages uh, we just uh, mentioned, XRDP and XFCE. Step four involves configuring XRDP itself. Enable XRDP services by adding the following lines to your jail's etcrc conf. So you see, uh, you say XRDP enable equals yes to start the service upon reboot and xrdp sysman underscore enable equals yes to enable the session management of the uh, jail for xrdp. Step five, uh, we're soon there. Modify the start wm script. There's user local etc xrdp start wmsh file, and you need to uncomment the exec start xfce to ensure xfce is started with xrdp automatically. 
Step six is easy enough, adding a user because a user uh, is needed for the remote access into the jail. And that is just by running the add user script, follow the prompts, set up the user in the way you like. Step seven and the last is secure the connection. Never expose the XRDP port directly. Instead, use an SSH tunnel. Restart the jail first. Establish an SSH tunnel from your local machine to the host machine of the jail, forwarding the traffic to the jail's IP address uh, on port 3389, which is the default port for XRDP, and connect to the jail as the second step uh, using an XRDP client through the tunnel. And you now have a secure remote desktop environment using XFCE within a FreeBSD jail accessible through an SSH tunnel. This setup is ideal for managing isolated environments for a secure remote workspace uh, solution. This is an excellent article because this is one of the most common questions that we get asked by people coming from the Windows environment. It's because they're so used to the classic desktop uh, and then they remote desktop into that, so they RDP into that. So this basically gives them a similar feel so they can sort of get their graphical user interface and then be able to you know progress from there because i think a lot of the times it's very daunting that they just get a shell and that's it and they've got to just build the rest of the stuff up but if if you're helping them and you you know you've got a, a large cluster at work and they're trying to get familiar with something you know you can give them a, a desktop, a remote desktop that you know is in a in a jail, so they can't break anything, and it allows them to sort of start to get familiar with some of the the uh, you know the icons and the layouts and the, the classical desktop that we are so used to with inside the different BSD. So yeah, nice write up. Okay, moving on to a sneak peek: uh, SIMD enhanced string functions for AMD sixty-four. So this is a release uh, on the FreeBSD Foundation website uh, from the eighth of December, twenty twenty-three. String processing is a common part of almost all programs found on FreeBSD. Even if strings are not at the core of an application, many ancillary tasks such as passing options, dealing with configuration files, and generating log files involve string operations. String operations have a reputation for performing rather poorly. Instead of having an explicit length, C strings are terminated with null characters. Routines processing such as strings, such as those provided by the C standard library, libc, are often reduced to walking through strings characters by character in search of the null terminator. To remedy these performance problems, the FreeBSD Foundation sponsored work to re-implement the libc string function with the SIMD techniques, speeding up string functions and conveying benefits to a wide variety of text processing programs. An initial implementation was carried out for the AMD64 architecture, also known as x86-64 using the SSE family of instruction set extensions. Being the most common architecture on which FreeBSD is used and most widely supported set of SIMD extensions, we hope that the largest share of our user base can benefit from this initial improvement. Work on this implementation is now concluded and is currently undergoing acceptance testing for inclusion into 15 current. The enhanced function will then be backboarded for inclusion into the future FreeBSD 14.1 release. Technical aspects. Over the years, the AMD AMD64 architecture has been extended with a variety of instruction sets, many of which are useful for improving the performance of string functions. However, only the presence of a small number of them, the baseline set, is guaranteed on any AMD64 processor. 
Following the AMD 64 architecture levels laid out by the AMD 64 System 5 ABI, we have implemented a dispatch framework that picks the most appropriate implementation of each string function based on the architectural level support by your CPU and what implementations are available. Being based on the iFunk uh, mechanism, the dispatch framework has no runtime overhead after an initial call to determine which function is to be used. Currently, most strings functions have implementations for the baseline or x86-64v2 architecture levels based on the SSE family of instruction sets extensions. Complemented by Scalar implementations for users who wish to opt out of SIMD enhanced string functions altogether. Revisions have been made for future extensions to the x86-64v3, ABX and ABX2, and x86-64v4, ABX5112F, BW, DQVL architecture levels. The architecture level used can be controlled by the new environment variable arch level. An effort has been made to provide implementations for the baseline architecture level of almost all functions. However, some functions require instructions are only added to the x86-64v2 to provide a meaningful performance benefit over the scalar implementations and consequently only have x86-64v2 level implementations. For other functions, we found that the use of SSE does not provide the significant benefit over scalar i.e. non-SIMD code. For these, only Scalar implementations are provided. This includes the mem copy and mem set family of functions for which AMD64 provides specialist machine instructions that usually outperform SSE. And then it goes into a set of functions which uh, were directly enhanced part of the project. So it's listed there in the post and some lists Important functions, no direct SIMD implementations are provided. So there's also some functions there listed. Uh, the implementation details. Two main challenges are associated with the use of SIMD techniques for string manipulation. The first challenge is found in a prior unknown length of null terminated string C strings. The length of the string must be discovered as the string is processed, finding the string length in a first pass and then process the string as if it was of fixed length is frequently significantly slower. Additionally, care must be taken not to read too far past the end of the string. The string may end just before an unmapped page crossing into which could crash the program. Thus, care must be taken to never cross the page boundaries before the code has ensured that the string does not end before the boundary. This is usually achieved by only performing aligned loads from memory, which do not cross page boundaries, loading the next chunk only to have having verified the absence of a null character in the previous chunk. While this method usually works, functions like strcmp that deals with the multiple strings at once may require more complicated techniques. The other challenge is that most strings are rather short. While SIMD routines are usually optimized for large inputs, string routines are frequently called on short strings and must be performed well on these. If a string routine is programmed with large initial setup costs with overly large block sizes, it may perform worse than generic C code it replaced in the applications it was used in. To avoid this problem, a custom benchmark framework was designed testing string functions on inputs with average length of 16 bytes, 64 bytes, and a very long 128 kilobyte strings. 
then the routines were incrementally optimized for good performance across all three cases. Benchmark results. The benchmark result show the performance of the various string functions on their respective micro benchmarks from our benchmark framework. The benchmarks chosen for this diagram reflect an average string length of 64 bytes with geometric distribution. Please note the benchmarks for the distribution functions vary in various details and the measured performance is not directly comparable. Where FreeBSD did not have an architectural specific implementation of a string function before the pre column shows performance of the generic C code and the scalar, as well as the SSE for baseline x8664v2, are the newly implemented functions. Otherwise, the scalar column refers to an existing assembly implementation com complemented by a new SIMD implementation for the SSE column. And then there's a, a graph where you can see the pre uh, mapping and then uh, scalar and SSE. So you can get some idea of uh, the um, speed up that's occurred there. Now we observed the new implementation improved performance of the previous code by a factor of 5.4. So that's, you know, that's five time, five and a half time increase, 550% increase on average. The improvement range from factors of 1.6 for strln to 14.5 for timing safe mem copy so um that's uh, a significant boost in performance there so uh it'd be interesting to see what the real world impacts of this is going to be yeah since they're used pretty much everywhere every application uses some kind of string handling and if that is faster and uses CPU extensions that make these things much faster then I guess applications will benefit from that one way or the other so that's what we can look forward to. Uh, another thing is uh, an article that we found which covers a question that we also get a lot on this show, and that is from Pat Maddox. First steps in programming FreeBSD, reading process information. So Pat Maddox writes, I occasionally come across people on the FreeBSD forum and Discord asking, how do I get started developing on FreeBSD? I have wondered the same thing. In this post, I'll share my experience dipping my toes in the water of FreeBSD development for the first time. So uh, his programming objective for, that's a separate blog post for this post, is to read process information effectively, a stripped down version of PS. I will show you how I found the FreeBSD specific information needed to do that. Uh, first, what do I mean by FreeBSD development? By FreeBSD development, I mean developing anything that could plausibly live in the FreeBSD source tree. The kernel, including modules, user space programs, libraries, supporting infrastructure, like release tools. Broadly speaking, I would classify the first three as systems programming and something I have no experience with and which I would like to learn more about. What makes FreeBSD development different from application development? So it depends on your background. For context, uh, Pat has been programming professionally for 20 years. He started with C++ and Java and then moved primarily to web development. Uh, he used Java for 15 years and have worked and has worked mostly with Elixir for the past several years. Okay, first thing he notices, FreeBSD development ecosystem looks and feels very different from what he's used to, especially when it comes to documentation. He also writes well. Exilia. One more time. Elixir has a package repo called Hex, which lists every Elixir package you might want to install and a culture of high-quality, comprehensive documentation. Each library typically comes with a complete API reference and guides for how to use it. They uh, also link separately if you're interested. 
FreeBSD, on the other hand, has man pages. Compared to Elixir docs, man pages tend to be fragmented and inconsistent. Whereas some libraries have a single man page documenting all their functions, like libxo, others document each function in separate man pages, like there is no man page for libfetch, but there is one for the function fetch. This means that if you know a library exists, you might not find its documentation right away using man or apropos. There is good news though, we have all the source code that gives us plenty of useful working examples and can point the way to relevant documentation. Before we look at how to find useful information, I want to take a brief look at the FreeBSD architecture from a developer's perspective. The architecture, if you don't know, the FreeBSD operating system is essentially divided into two parts, the kernel and user space. The kernel is a program that runs in privileged mode and provides critical services, process management, memory management, and I.O. User space programs are what you think of as normal programs and make requests to the kernel for resources. FreeBSD source code is roughly organized in the following layers, from higher level to lower level, programs, libraries, and syscalls. In other words, programs typically call libraries which invoke syscalls. Oftentimes, there is a collection of program library syscalls to work with the same underlying concept. For example, jail calls jail, and well, so here, jail 8, they list the man page of uh, section 8. That calls jail man page section 3 and jail man page section 2 in turn. We can use this general architecture to our advantage by starting at a programming place or at a promising place, more like, and then exploring outward from there. Uh, so Pat has found these main components of information, man pages, library source code, and program source code. Let's look at an example on how to explore them to find helpful information. A simple objective, reading process information. Uh, right, time to get down to the brass tacks and write some code. Where to start? Well, I know two things. I'm interested in the processes and there are existing utilities that report process information, like PS or even Procstat. Searching the man pages. I'll start with an apropos search for process and see if anything looks promising. I'm not familiar with the results, but I know generally to focus on section three items. A few stand out to me. Kinfo get alproc. The description sounds promising. Function for getting process information of all processes from kernel. Kvm get procs. I have no idea what Kvm is, but I also but it also sounds promising. Access user process state, and there's procs that get procs mainly because I know that procs that exists and probably calls the library. Corroborating with program code. Does PS use either of these? Let's take a look. Yep, a search for ps.c for kvm get procs reveals it being used. Now we need to figure out what it's doing, but we're in a better spot, able to do more focused research. Looking at kvm get procs, we see that we need to pass a kvm t struct as the first argument. I have no idea what it is, and a propos doesn't help. Okay, <laughs> a bit further up, we see that a call to kvm open files initializes the struct. Later on, we see ps accessing the process information from the struct. What other data does the struct have? A search for kinfo proc leads me to sys slash sys slash user.h, which defines and documents the struct. Based on that, I'm pretty sure that ki underscore pid and ki underscore com are the properties I'm looking for. Interpreting the man page. There's one thing I don't quite grok because my C skills are weak. How is PS iterating over the processes? I can see that it increments the pointer location, but I'm not sure how to make sense of it. KVM get procs sheds light on it. The processes are returned as a contiguous array of kinfo underscore proc structures, unquote. So while it does look like an array that I'm familiar with, the underlying memory is an array. 
that's how PS can start with the initial pointer and then iterate to the point to the next item. So just plus plus. There's one other thing to point out on the man page. It informs me of which headers I need to include to use the function. Uh, he lists the result uh, of his uh, little C spelunking here. Phew, all that needs, uh, all that leads me to an absolute bare bones, totally not production ready program that requests process information from the kernel and prints it on screen. So it basically cuts down the PS. I'm not reading the source code. You can read that from the uh, link on the blog we are having down to the absolute minimum. So there are a few constants, path, def null, uh, o underscore read only, etc. that I need to search FreeBSD source for to find the headers to include. But the program provided is fully functional. In summary, uh, Pat writes, impressive? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on who you are and what you know. I hope it illustrates how someone with little to no systems programming knowledge can find the information they need to make progress. A few things to keep in mind before we part ways. First, all of the source code is there, the programs, libraries, and kernel. Second, use your existing knowledge of FreeBSD to find your starting point. Three, use the program library slash syscall layered architecture to guide your explorations. And four, the info you need is in some combination of man pages, library source, and program source. And I would add five, don't be afraid to ask, right? Someone uh, is always happy to explain it to you, either in the FreeBSD forums or in other ways we have given you access to developers and they're usually uh, help, helpful and get you some pointers how to continue. With that, Pat hopes this helps you along in your efforts to program FreeBSD. Excellent. Yeah, cool. Uh, next up is uh, Chris Sederman's blog uh, where he's um, put an entry in there for the 2nd of December 2023. Why Unix kernels have grown caches for directory entries, name caches. An interesting feature of a modern Unix kernel is that they generally know the names of things like current directories and open files. Traditionally, the only thing Unix knew about open files, current directories, active memory map files, and so on, was their inode, as in in-kernel data structure, including pointers to the inode's mount point and so on. However, sometime back, various Unixes added a kernel cache of directory entry names and associated data. In Linux, these were, or these are, dentries and dcache. In FreeBSD, there is the name cache. Once Unix kernel had such a general cache, it could pin all the entries for an active file and directory objects and so generally be available to supply their names either for system monitoring purposes, such as Linux proc PID FD subdirectory, or so they could support a system call to return the name of the current directory if it had one. The reason that several Unixes all added these name caches is straightforward. Running Unix systems generally do a lot of directory name lookups. The steady addition of a shared libraries, which may live in number of different places, data files for locales and time zones, a lot of path entries and so on didn't improve the situation. Before name caches, each of these lookups had to call into specific file systems, which were generally checked through whatever the on-disk data structure for directories was. Hopefully the actual disk blocks for the directories would already be in a kernel's disk cache so they didn't have to be read in. Um, just a side note, I remember doing um, uh, trust commands like back in the 90s and you would see so many hits you know, against the, the tree 
um, that would, you know, you think about the the additional overheads that, you know, every time something ran, this sort of stuff got, um, you know, read in and what that caused to the system's uh, actual running speed. Back to the blog post. The kernel name cache provides a fast path for all these lookups. The cache is especially useful for looking up things that are almost certainly already in active use, such as bin sh, the core shared library loader, or the C shared library. These are almost always in memory already, so with the right efficiency in in-memory data structures for name caches, the kernel can go from bin sh to an inode quite efficiently and directly without having to do a bunch of indirections through things like virtual file system switch. An explicit kernel name cache also had the additional benefit that it can store negative entries in Linux negative entries. They say that the particular name isn't present. There are a fair number of situations on modern Unixes where programs will attempt to find a file in a succession of directories with negative entries. So those checks of all the directories that the file isn't in can still be pretty efficient. Without some sort of support for this name is definitely not here in the name cache, the kernel would have no choice but to ask the file system to search the on-disk directory for the name. I don't know if there's any performance studies for the current name caches in the current Unix kernels, but I'm sure that they make a real difference both in lookup speed and the reduced kernel CPU engine. Even in the late 1980s, name lookups were quite a common thing and they relied very heavily on high hit rates in the kernel block cache. I was once, and he was once involved in studying this in a BSD-derived kernel, and he remembers the hit rates of 90%. An interesting read on kernel name translation overhead and optimizing is the relevant section in the 4.4 BSD Lite system performance paper. P.S. Since he looked it up, all of Linux, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and NetBSD have some form of kernel name caches. He didn't know about Illumos or the few few surviving commercial Unixes. Sidebar, the potential name of file system objects. A directory in a conventional Unix file system has either one name or no name if it's been removed. Because of this, the kernel's name cache can always know the directory's current name if it had one. If it wants to, the name cache can go further and provide the na last name that the directory was known by before it was deleted, along with the mark that it was deleted. A file can have no name it can, if it had been removed since it was opened by mmapped. It uh, can have one name or it can have several names because there are several hard links to it. Because of this, the kernel name cache may not necessarily know the current name of an open file. If it started out having multiple hard links, was opened through one hard link, and then that hard link was removed, the name cache may not know the name of the other remaining hard links. Even if the name cache does know the other names for the file, it's a policy decision if the name cache should provide them or if it should return the original name the file was opened under, along with the indication that the name was removed. In at least some implementations of the slash proc slash PID slash FD or the equivalent, you can still read the data of now deleted files. So you don't need the current name to do this and knowing the original now deleted name program used may be more useful than knowing a current alternative name okay right yeah always good to know about these things right what the system does for you to make things uh, go a little bit faster and i think what better way to 
close this last item of the year and also handing it to you as a kind of a thing to motivate you in the new year. Always learning, always teaching uh, on the Steph Angle blog, who is the uh, CEO of uh, the Obsidian software. And that goes like this. A professor of mine used to often quote Bob Dylan. He not busy being born is busy dying. Some are comfortable making the same thing the same way their entire career. Not. But that approach is fragile, susceptible to unexpected events. Documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi is a lesson that masters in their craft are always learning, always challenging their own assumptions and always training the next generation. In Jiro's case, at age 86 and beyond, relentlessly. Wow. If you want to grow, give away your knowledge and techniques. Teaching is a tried and true way to experience rebirth. You should be continuously running from the pack of ravenous dogs while dropping a trail of fresh meat behind you. To teach, distill what you know. Develop the theory of what you learned by instinct and practice. By teaching, you will understand your craft better than you did before. By giving away your techniques, you will empower peers and competitors and force yourself to stay creative and continuously open new doors. That's it. That's the, what better way, right, to you know introduce the new year and uh, a good way to, as a good, uh, you know, New Year's resolution. Some very sad advice there. Mm -hmm. Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated, so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Uh, do you have any plans? We don't have any feedback in this episode, so we might as well you know, <laughs> see what we come up with. Yeah, um, for what I'm doing over the Christmas break, I'm not doing much. I'm actually um, in an acting manager role at the moment, so um, I don't have my hands on the tools as much, but um, I'm able to coordinate and probably do what that last last article did and uh, provide provide the, the tools and the, uh, the the techniques that people need to, uh, you know, improve their skills. So, you know, let them step up and uh, understand how things work. So... Yeah, that's that's basically what I'm doing over the Christmas break. Is um, I have the usual time off. So in Australia, we have Christmas Day and Boxing Day off, and then you know, I think there's three days of work, and then there's New Year's Eve. We don't have New Year's Eve off, but um, uh, yeah, we've got the New Year's Day, and then that's basically it. And then we have uh, Australia Day on 
um, January 26th. So basically summertime oh, down yes. here is like full of like public holidays everywhere. So you could sort of, <laughs> if, if you're half smart, because we, where I work, we have what's known as a crude day off. ADO. So um, if you're half smart, you can string a few of those ADOs together to sort of, you know, get yourself, um, you know, uh, full, full, you know, banks of, you know, eight to 10 days off instead of just mm. uh, having those public holidays. So, yeah. yeah like a, br- a bridge day or something yeah. like that. Just, yep, that's mm. it. So, yeah, it's um, I recently some, heard a summer, good, holiday, good some of the, summer holidays down here. So we're uh, sort of taking it a bit easier, um, you know, sort of like what it is in the Northern Hemisphere around the, the, the July mark for you guys. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Recently heard a good joke about, you know, these bridge days. For Captain Kirk, every day is a bridge day. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so here, yeah, pretty much uh, there's Christmas on the, or Christmas Eve on the 24th, as always. And I have uh, holidays uh, for the days where you would have to work from the 27th of 29th. So there's nice to uh, have a bit of time off. And officially, the university starts again on the 15th of January, but we employees have to be back in the office on the 2nd. But many of us will take that week also off. So they, most of these will probably head back to the office on the 8th so that we have still a week before the students and professors return. And so we can look at systems and do some updates or you know start the year a little bit uh, on a slower pace. Yeah, ease, ease uh, back into it. That's what it is. Yeah, exactly. You know, right. Don't. I, I I look at this time of the year because we we basically put embargoes in place, so there's no big changes. Because you know people put change, mm-hmm. don't want people putting changes in and then just going on holidays. Um, yeah. But you know, <laughs> use it for general maintenance, and and it also gives you a bit of downtime to to sort of do some R and D that um, you've been putting off all year because you keep getting interrupted. But um, you get a bit bit more time at this time of year for that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, and it, I mean, it allows you also to like read a couple books that you typically would read back to back, and not just oh, I'm getting to it, back to it next week, or uh, you you just have this continued way of reading through a book rather than going back to it week after week. That at least for me, that's better to read rather than uh, oh, a little bit here, a little bit there. So I look forward to that. Maybe I'll have a couple of uh, new things uh, that I can try out. It's kind of like you have free time and you spend it in the, the way you think is good. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Speaking of books, because uh, now it's after 539, we can actually talk about that episode. Um, <laughs> one of the questions was like, you know, uh, what books have you read recently and what what do you plan to read? And um, I did mention that uh, I was, uh, you know, I've got the ebook of, uh, Git Sync Murder that I've got to, you know, finally get around oh, yeah. to reading. But um, yeah, well, I've only got the ebook because trying to, you know, get books sent here is uh, quite expensive. But I did find it on our local Amazon um, uh, store, so in hardcover. Huh. So I think I'll be putting uh-huh. a, a purchase in for that over the holiday break. So I've got a uh, <laughs> brand spanking new hardcover version of Git Sync Murder um, to uh, enjoy in its goodness. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a nice uh, way of, you know, giving a bit back to the author and also a funny way to, you know, experience uh, Unix in a different way or the uh, Unix conferences even. Yeah, I do I do uh, like uh, rocking up to uh, um, the table where uh, 
Michael W. Lucas stands at uh, the uh, different conferences and uh, load my yeah. suitcase up full of books to take home with me because <laughs> oh yeah yeah it's, separate uh, yeah it's, e- it's easier certainly books. to pick the books up there than it is to try and get them sent in the mail back to Australia. So um, yeah, mm. that's another benefit of going to the conferences. You get to uh, load the bag up with all the goodies and go home. Yeah, also good New Year's resolution, get to at least one BSD conference, right? Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Some of them have already announced when they are, and like BSD Can, for example, and uh, BSD, uh, Asia BSD Con in Taiwan. Euros, uh, Euros Euro been, Con. been announced too. The dates have been announced yep. for that. Um, and uh, there was a, a bit of posting on Mastodon uh, during the week in regards to that, and I uh, reposted it too. So uh, Australians, get your airline tickets booked. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think I, I'm thinking of dobbing myself in. I've got. I'm going to have to go you know, based on uh, how I'm posting <laughs> that sort of stuff up. Yeah, that's nice. Even though uh, it's BSD specific, or you could also go to another conference, right, and maybe find some BSD content there, or send in a talk of your own, right? How you use it, how your experiences, teach people. It's just a good way to connect to people that are also in the similar uh, interests that you are and exchange your ideas and how to do things. That's just amazing to to do and see. Mm. I do know um, Linux Conf AU is coming up shortly here and I do know that uh, BSD people in Australia do tend to visit that conference. And there's actually been talks, um, BSD talks at that conference as well. Oh, so um uh, that's another one if you're in Australia uh, to get to, um, you know, we don't have a, you know, a full room and that sort of stuff. I think we did have a room at the one in Queensland, but that was during the COVID pandemic and like nobody from the southern yeah. states could get there anyway because they wouldn't let us in. But, um, uh, you know, that was that was quite a big one that was uh, attended to quite a few significant prominent figures in the uh, FreeBSD community. So, um yeah, keep an eye out for that and, um, you know, just ask around and um, you never know who you might find at these conferences. Yeah, exactly. Uh, other than that, we will, of course, follow these conferences either here on the show as people put out news or we go there ourselves if we're able to and then report back how our experiences went. Are you planning something special in the BSD space in the future for 2024? Let us know. Send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv or join our Telegram channel. That is uh, a good way to you know give a little bit of a back and forth uh, or discuss episodes or talk to us uh, hosts if we're around and uh, exchange your uh, BSD experiences with other people also on the channel. With that, uh, that's really our last episode now for the last year, uh, or for 2023, that is. Uh, We also look forward to the new year, and until our next episode airs, uh, enjoy yourself, have a good uh, start in the new year, happy and healthiness, of course, throughout, and the rest is just details. (laughs) (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone. 